<clears throat> yeah, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Acts chapter 25. <clears throat> Acts chapter 25 and let's read from verse 13. It says, And after certain days, King Agrippa and Bernice came under Caesarea's salute Festus. And when they had been there many days, Festus declared Paul's case under the king, saying, There is a certain man left in bonds by Felix. And let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time that we can come and spend gathered around your word this morning. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would uh, teach us and instruct us through your word this morning. We pray that it would be your words and your thoughts. Lord, I pray that you would empower me through the Spirit now. Give me wisdom as I speak. Lord, may you refresh us, bless us through your word. May we leave singing your praises and knowing that we've been in your presence. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last Sunday, of course, we saw Paul exercise his right as a Roman citizen to appeal unto Caesar. Okay, remember he was called before Festus uh, on trial yet again, and Festus wanted to send him to Jerusalem to appease the Jews, and Paul refused. Paul instead appealed unto Caesar. And so because he's made that appeal unto Caesar, now everything has to stop. All legal proceedings stop, and Festus is obliged to send Paul to Rome as he has requested and we saw that in verse 12 it says then Festus when he had conferred with the council answered hast thou appealed under Caesar under Caesar shalt thou go and so Paul is now destined for Rome that is where he's heading but before we get to that we have this one final section if you like in Caesarea now, beginning here in verse 13 right through to the end of chapter 26 uh, Luke records for us Paul's final period of incarceration at Caesarea. Uh, and Paul is given one final opportunity to stand and give a defense of his faith. The Lord gives him yet another chance to defend the faith, to give his testimony. And this opportunity arrives at an informal hearing. As I just mentioned, you know, all legal proceedings have stopped. And so this is not a formal trial. This is rather a a hearing, if you like, uh, where he gets this opportunity to give testimony. Um, and in chapter 26 is where we find that testimony. We find Paul's speech recorded for us. Um, and it's the longest and it's the fullest account of his five speeches that he makes in defense of himself. Okay? Luke really gives us a, a lot of details about what he actually says on this occasion. But our passage this morning is the lead up, if you like, to that event. It's the setting the scene for Paul being given this opportunity to testify of his faith. Um, and so we, we're going to focus on that this morning. We're just going to focus on the lead up, if you like, the lead up events to this testimony. And in verse 13 through to verse 22 of our text this morning, we have recorded for us a private conversation that takes place between Festus and King Agrippa. So it's a private conversation, and it's recorded for us here in the Word of God. And because it's a private conversation, some have questioned the truthfulness of Luke's account. 
You know, some believe that it's simply Luke's reconstruction of the events, of the discussion. You know, one commentator uh, put it this way. He said, it must be assumed that here we have a clear example of Luke's policy of narrating what is likely to have been said on such an occasion. We have, therefore, evidence of Luke's dramatic skill, uh, which he will no doubt have also, also employed in recounting other scenes for which he had no concrete evidence. And that was a good Bible scholar, Bible commentator, who had that opinion. Now, that view leaves it open to the accusation that Luke fabricated this passage, doesn't it? And indeed, worse than that, it calls into question the very inspiration of the Word of God. I don't know about you, but we believe by faith. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And that includes this passage here, this private conversation here between Festus and King Agrippa. It's in the Word of God. We believe it's inspired by God. And so Luke doesn't guess what happens here. He doesn't fabricate this uh, conversation. No, this is revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. How? Well, we don't really know. Maybe the Holy Spirit told him directly. Or maybe the Holy Spirit gave him an eyewitness who was in the room and overheard this conversation. It doesn't really matter how. The point is the Holy Spirit revealed it under Luke, didn't he? And Luke has recorded it for us here in Acts chapter 25. And so we have a faithful and true account, and we accept that by faith, don't we? That this is uh, the true account of what took place. And in this account, we see that Festus, he faces a dilemma. The dilemma is that he's now determined to send Paul to Rome because Paul has requested that. But the problem is he has absolutely no idea what to write as being the charges against Paul as he sends Paul to Rome. I mean, he's got to write something. He's got to send a letter informing Rome, informing Uh, the emperor as to exactly what it is that Paul's done. What's the case against Paul? And the problem is he doesn't know what to write. I mean, he says at the end of the chapter, verse 26, he says, of whom I have no certain thing to write unto my Lord. Wherefore, I have brought him forth before you and specially before thee, O King Agrippa, that after examination had, I might have somewhat to write. For it seemeth to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not withal to signify the crimes laid against him. And so this is his dilemma. He doesn't know what to write. He's at a loss. He's confused. And so in an effort to learn what he should write, perhaps understand this case a little bit better, Festus here seeks the advice of King Agrippa. He consults King Agrippa and then he brings Paul in before him. And so first of all, here this morning, we see Festus consulting King Agrippa. Festus consulting King Agrippa. Just read verse 13 again. It says, And after certain days, King Agrippa and Bernice came under Caesarea to salute Festus. In verse 13, we're told that a short time after Festus arrives in the office, office of governor of Judea, that King Agrippa and Bernice come to visit him. Now, the word came here implies that they came and stayed for an extended period of time. Okay, so this wasn't just a short visit. They actually come and stayed with him and spent a great deal of time with the new governor, Festus. And they're there to salute him, it says in verse 13. At the end, it says, They came under Caesarea to salute Festus. 
In other words, they're there to welcome him to his new position, aren't they? Okay? This is dignitaries from another area coming to establish relations, if you like, with the new governor. And so we have these two, King Agrippa and Bernice. Who are these two? Well, King Agrippa is King Herod Agrippa II. Okay, he's the second. He's the son of King Agrippa that's mentioned back in Acts chapter 12. Okay, it's his son. And he's also the great-grandson of Herod the Great. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about his younger sister, who was married to Felix, Drusilla. Remember we talked about her? Okay, that's his younger sister, who was married to the previous governor. Okay, and so this is her older brother, King Agrippa II. And he was brought up in Rome in the court of the Emperor Claudius. And he was a favourite of the Emperor. So much so that when his uncle died, he was given the responsibility of the kingdom of Chalcis in southern Lebanon. And so his kingdom is actually up southern Lebanon. That's where he was ruling. Later on, he then exchanged this kingdom for the former territories of his great uncle, Herod Philip, which was the northeast corner of Galilee. Okay, so he's moved, he's decided he likes this pastoral land better, so he's moved south and he's taken this, this region near Galilee there. And then Emperor Nero extended his rule over surrounding territories of the Sea of Galilee, some of the, the, the towns around there. But the point is, he never actually ruled in Judea or Samaria or Galilee proper, like his father did. Okay, his father was the one who ruled over those regions, He never actually did rule over those regions. It's the governor who has control of those areas, not King Agrippa II. Okay, we need to understand that. He's up away from Jerusalem and all that. He's up near Galilee to the northeast. But he did, however, have the legal jurisdiction of the temple. I don't know how this really worked. He's not even in the area, but he has authority over the temple. It was under his command. This meant he had the right to select a new high priest when the time came. He had the right to oversee the temple treasury and everything else that was in the temple. It was under his authority. And because of this office, because of this position, he was considered by Rome to be the authority on the Jewish religion. Okay, So he was the authority on the Jewish religion. And that explains to us why Festus consults him. Okay, He seeks his advice because this is the man who's supposed to know everything about the Jewish religion and how it all works, and maybe he can shed some light on why Paul is so offensive towards them. And with King Agrippa here is also Bernice. Now, Bernice is his sister. Okay, it's another one of his sisters. And she wasn't real good, just like her other sibling. Okay, she was known to be a very scandalous woman. She was described as the Jewish Cleopatra. So she didn't have a very good name. At 13, she was married to her uncle, who was the king of Chalcis before Herod Agrippa. Um, And she bore him two sons. After he died, she went to live with her brother, King Agrippa II. And it was strongly believed by the Jews that this was an incestuous relationship. And so the Jews didn't like King Agrippa and Bernice. They really disdained them because they viewed them as being in a sinful relationship. And then later during the Jewish war with Rome, she became the mistress of none other than Roman general Titus. You remember who Titus is? He's the one who sacked Jerusalem. He's the one who destroyed the temple. She was his mistress. And she went back with him to Rome and she was going to marry him. 
until the Romans put an end to it because Titus became the emperor. And they said, no, you're not marrying this Jewish woman. And so they put an end to the relationship. But that's who she was uh, in a relationship with. It was Titus who became the next emperor of Rome. And so you can understand why she was called the Jewish Cleopatra. She was a bit of a scandalous woman. But I say all that to introduce who these two are, to give us an idea. Okay, And these two are the ones who now come to Caesarea... They meet with Festus, and it's these two who end up sitting in judgment over the Apostle Paul. You know, one commentator noted the irony of this. He said, there is irony in having such a couple sit in judgment on Paul, who, as Luke makes clear, is innocent. This truly is a world turned upside down, isn't it? You know, that these unjust are sitting in judgment over someone who's righteous. They're the ones who end up sitting and hearing his case. Just give me a second here and turn the fan on and die. Alright, sorry. Um, as we read on now in verse 14, we learn that they're there for a few days before Festus brings up the subject of Paul. Just read with me verse 14. It says, And when they had been there many days, Festus declared Paul's cause under the king, saying, There is a certain man left in bonds by Felix. And so they're there for a few days. They're Uh, enjoying, I guess, getting to know each other. And then Festus brings up the subject of Paul. As we mentioned earlier, Agrippa had a reputation of being the authority on Jewish religion. And even Paul acknowledges this in chapter 26. If you go to chapter 26 with me and verse 2, Paul says this, he says, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews, especially because I know thee to be an expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore I beseech thee to hear me patiently. So even Paul acknowledges his uh, knowledge of the, the Jewish religion. And so based on this, based on his reputation here, Festus brings up the topic of Paul. He believes he's the best man to help him to understand it all and maybe give him something to write in his report to Rome. And so Festus here begins by filling Agrippa in on all that has happened until this point in time. Let's just read from uh, verse uh, 14 again. It says, And when when they had been there many days, Festus declared Paul's case under the king, saying, There is a certain man left in bonds by Felix, about whom, when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders of the Jews informed me desiring to have judgment against him. To whom I answered, it is not the manner of the Romans to deliver any man to die before that which, sorry, that he which is accused have the accusers face to face and have license to answer for himself concerning the crime laid against him. And so he now begins to recount the events of what's taken place. He recounts how, you know, as we saw when he came to office, Straight away he goes up to Jerusalem and what happened? The, the Jews immediately are pressuring him concerning the case of Paul. They're, they're asking him to, to bring Paul back to Jerusalem to be tried by them. And they're even pressuring him to condemn him without a trial. I mean, he says that at the end of verse 15. He says, desiring to have judgment against him. It implies that they wanted him killed, okay? They wanted judgment on Paul And he goes on in verse 16, to whom I answered, it is not the matter of Romans to deliver any man to die. And so they were pressuring him to to condemn Paul and put him to death before ever he'd heard anything 
from Paul firsthand or had the accusers come to Caesarea and accuse Paul. But of course, as we saw last week, he stood firm, didn't he? He did the right thing. He abided by the Roman law and he told them to come down to Caesarea and bring their charges against Paul there. In verse 17 and 18, he goes on to tell of his surprise when he did hear the charges against Paul. It says in verse 17, Therefore, when they were come hither without any delay, on the morrow I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought forth, against whom, when the accusers stood up, they brought none accusation of such things as I supposed. He, he tells Agrippa here, he says, I was surprised. When they finally did come and they laid their accusations against Paul, it wasn't what I was expecting. It wasn't what he was expecting to hear at all. It, it was totally unexpected. You see, given the fact they wanted Paul to be executed, he assumed that Paul must have done something that violated Roman law. He must have done something pretty serious for them to want him to be put to death. But instead, what he found was that the accusations were questions about theology. And he says that in verse 19. He says, But had certain questions against him of their own superstition, and of one Jesus, which was dead, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. He, he learned that the accusations were really just about theology. And he says here, he says, There were questions against him of their own superstition now the word translated superstition here means someone who reverences the gods that's the what the word means in the greek and taken positively so it can be taken positively or negatively depending on the way it's said the way it's meant taken positively the word can mean someone who's religious if it's negative it can mean someone who's superstitious it's been translated here as uh, the superstition but, you know, if you put yourself in the context of the situation here, you know, given the fact that Festus here is talking to King Agrippa, who is the authority on the Jewish religion and is himself very religious, it would seem a bit foolish for Festus to call his religion superstition, wouldn't it? And so more than likely here, the actual context here is that he says questions against him concerning their religion. That's what he says here, okay, concerning their own religion. At least that's the way it looks to me, that it's a positive use of the word. Okay? He's not trying to insult the Jews here. He's not trying to insult King Agrippa either. He's not saying your religion is superstitious. He's just acknowledging that the questions were concerning their religion. And in particular, the questions here involved who? The Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he says at the end of verse 19. He says, And of one Jesus, which was dead, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. Festus here declares that Paul affirmed him to be alive, affirmed Christ the Lord to be alive, to be risen again. You know, this gives us a clear indication, doesn't it, that Paul's defense before Festus included much more than what Luke told us in verse 8. Read verse 8 with me. Uh, It says, while he answered for himself, uh, neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor yet against Caesar have I offended anything at all. That was all that he recorded for us at the time. But now that we learn that he's he's spoken about the resurrection, there was obviously much more that Paul said, wasn't there? There was a lot more that he was able to say before Festus at that time. You know, evidently, he had the opportunity to declare his belief in the resurrection in general, 
but more importantly in the fact that Jesus had risen again as the beginning of the first fruits of the resurrection. You know, this was something that Festus would have found extremely hard to understand. You see, to him, like, you know, like the Greeks, the Romans didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. They didn't believe in it. And so this whole uh, system of belief was foreign to him. It was strange. It doesn't make sense to Festus. And the tone of his remark indicates that Festus didn't believe Paul. He's, he's sort of even mocking him, if you like. He says, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. He says, Paul says he's alive. He's, it's almost looking down on Paul and mocking Paul for it, saying, I don't believe it, but this is what Paul said. Paul thinks he's alive. But you know, the wonderful truth that comes out here is that Paul, once again, is given an opportunity and he doesn't waste it, does he? He's given an opportunity and once again he boldly declares not only the death of Christ but also the resurrection. The resurrection of his Lord. You know, the word translated affirmed here in this verse, it says, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. That word affirmed is in the imperfect tense. And that indicates to us that Paul repeatedly made the claim that Christ was alive. He didn't just say it once. He's repeatedly making this claim as he's defending himself before Festus, repeatedly saying Christ is alive. So Paul has taken the opportunity to stress not only to the Jews who were present at that trial, but also to Festus, the truth of the resurrection. You know, the, the very foundation of the Christian faith. You know, Paul would write about that in First Corinthians, wouldn't he? He'd say that, you know, if, if Christ is not risen, then our faith is in vain. It's the very foundation of our faith, and Paul doesn't miss an opportunity to lay that foundation, to speak boldly on Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. You know, without knowing it, Festus really has identified the real reason, hasn't he? He's identified the real reason for the disagreement between Paul and the Jews. In this one verse, he's, a, he's, he's hit the nail on the head, but had certain questions against him of their own superstition and of one Jesus who was dead, whom Paul affirmed, affirmed to be alive. This really is what the dispute was all about. It was all about the resurrection. It was all about the Lord Jesus Christ. It was about his work here on earth. That's, that's what they didn't like about Paul. You see, while many of the Jews did believe in the resurrection, what they couldn't accept was that Jesus had died and risen again and that he was the first fruits of that. He was the beginning of the resurrection. Because if they accepted that, what does it mean? It means that Jesus is their Messiah. That's what it means. If they accept that truth, they have to acknowledge that he's their Messiah and that changes everything, doesn't it? So they wouldn't accept this. They refused to believe it. And that's why they had such a problem with Paul and they had such a problem with Peter and James and John and all the other apostles and all the other Christians. They had a problem with them because of their teachings that Jesus was dead, buried and rose again. And so thus the, Jeru- the, the leaders of Jerusalem's hatred of Paul and their desire for him to be put to death really was an evidence of their hatred of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's really what it was. They hated Jesus and now they're redirecting it and hating Paul. Paul is hated for his belief and for his preaching of Christ. Now, we've said it many times before, but likewise, we shouldn't be surprised when we are hated and when we are opposed by men because of the one we serve and the one we preach. We shouldn't be surprised by it. Now, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 13 says, Marvel not, my brethren, 
if the world hate you. We shouldn't be surprised by it. We shouldn't think it's strange that the world hates us and hates our, our beliefs, hates what we stand for. Shouldn't be surprised that the world is trying to go completely the opposite direction. That shouldn't surprise us. They're trying to cast off all Christian foundation. They don't like what Christ stands for. And so because they hate Christ, they're going to hate us. Because they rejected him, they will reject us. Now, we've looked at it in Matthew chapter 5 on Wednesday nights, haven't we? We've looked at the Beatitudes. We've seen the, the change that's to take place in our attitudes because we are now citizens of heaven. There's a change within that produces an outward change. And that outward change is to have an effect, isn't it? We are to be salt and light unto the world. And the point is that because of that change, that's why the world hates us, isn't it? That's why they hate us. That's why they oppose us. Because as our lives now reflect the Saviour, what does our life do? Life do. It shines a light upon the sin and the wickedness of the world. It condemns them and shows them their need of the Saviour. That's why it's so offensive. It convicts them of their sin, condemns them as guilty before God. So they have a choice. Either believe and be saved or reject Christ and oppose the gospel. And that really is the problem here with the Jews as well, isn't it? That's their problem. You see, the message that Paul is preaching is confronting. It's convicting. And if it's true, it means that they are the enemies of God, not Paul. It's a confronting message, isn't it? It means that they are the enemies. They are the ones opposed to God. If true, it meant that they were lost. It meant they were on their way to hell if they refused to accept the message. And so instead, what did they choose to do? Persecute the man of God. It's exactly what happens to us today, isn't it? Men are brought to a point where they have a decision to make. Either they accept it and acknowledge their sin or they reject it. And what do they do? Oppose the message. It's the same thing that happens to us. We are hated because of our Savior. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. And that's the case here with Paul. He's hated because of Christ. You know, Festus then concludes his account here explaining to Agrippa that he wanted to send Paul to Rome, uh, sorry, to Jerusalem to answer the charges. But Paul appealed under Caesar. Verse 20 says, And because I doubted of such manner of questions, I asked him whether he would go to Jerusalem and there be judged of these matters. When Paul had appealed to be reserved under the hearing of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I might send him to Caesar. So he finishes his account here. And he tells Agrippa, he says, I wanted to, to take Paul back to Jerusalem, but he refused. He has appealed under Caesar. And Agrippa has listened to all this account, and he seems to have his interest uh, pricked, if you like, his interest aroused. And so he responds by saying he wants to hear from Paul for himself. Look there in verse 22. It says, Then Agrippa said under Festus, I would also hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, thou shalt hear him. Now, there seems to be a, a distinct note of curiosity here from Agrippa, doesn't there? You know, he's curious to hear for himself from this one called Paul. Now, he hasn't been living under a rock. You know, he knows all about what happened in Jerusalem with Christ. He, he knows about that. He knows about what's taken place in the world since. He knows about the spread of the Christian religion. And he knows that Paul is at the, the forefront of all that. He's not living under a rock. He knows who Paul is. 
And so he sees this as an opportunity to hear firsthand from the Apostle Paul. He's, he's curious to hear from Paul. And so Festus consents to bring Paul now to stand before him on the morrow. And that's our second point this morning. Just quickly, we see Paul presented before Agrippa. Paul presented before Agrippa. Verse 23, it says, And on the morrow, when Agrippa was calm and Bernice, with great pomp, and was entered into the place of hearing, with the chief captains and principal men of the city, at Festus' commandment, Paul was brought forth. The chapter concludes with Luke describing for us uh, the scene, if you like. Okay? He's setting the scene for chapter 26. Okay? Uh, the, the hearing that's now uh, brought together as Paul is brought in and presented before Agrippa. And in verse 23, Luke, he tells us of all those who are in attendance, that all those who are present at this hearing to hear Paul. You see, not only is King Agrippa there and Bernice and Festus, but there's also other members of Festus' staff. Just read there again, verse 23 with me. It says, And on the morrow, when Agrippa was come and Bernice with great pomp and was entered into the place of hearing with the chief captains and principal men of the city at Festus' commandment, Paul was brought forth. And so you have these chief captains and the principal men of the city there as well. There's, there's a great deal of dignitaries present at this meeting, isn't there? You know, you've got the king, you've got his sister, you've got Festus, the governor, and now you've got these chief captains, you've got these other influential men. They're all gathered in this one room. You know, essentially in this room is the most important uh, political, military, civic leaders of the region. They're all in one room. All gathered for one reason, to hear Paul. To hear Paul speak. You know, what an incredible thing. The Lord has brought them all to him, hasn't he? The Lord's brought this, this wonderful crowd together for Paul to preach to them. You know, immediately we are reminded of the Lord's promise to Paul back at his conversion. Now, the Lord said that he would bear witness before the Gentiles and kings. Let's go back to Acts chapter 9 with me. Just read it, Acts 9. <clears throat> Acts 9 and verse 15, it says, <clears throat> But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Now here we have once again the Lord fulfilling this promise, don't we? The Lord's fulfilling this. Paul is now standing before Gentile kings. He's got the you know, King Agrippa there and his sister. He's got the governor there. He's got all these civic leaders there, military leaders. They're all in one room. Gentiles and kings and Jewish people. They're all together and Paul has an opportunity given to him by God to witness unto them. You know, it's interesting the way that Luke describes the entrance of King Agrippa and Bernice. He says that they arrive with a show of great pomp. Verse 23 there it says, And on the morrow when Agrippa was come and Bernice with great pomp. In other words, they arrive with a great deal of fanfare. You, know, you can imagine them arriving, you know, wearing their expensive clothes. Perhaps they've got their crowns on their head. Perhaps as they came to the door, you know, they've uh, blown the trumpets and they've announced their entrance. You know, it's a grand entrance for the king, showing off his royalty. Now, what's more interesting is that Agrippa's father had displayed the same kind of pomp in the same city 
And because he assumed, uh, assumed honour that belonged only unto God, what happened? The Lord struck him down and worms ate him. Go back to Acts chapter 12 with me quickly. Acts 12. <clears throat> Acts 12 and verse 23. <clears throat> oh, we'll start in verse 20. Acts 12 verse 20, it says, And Herod was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon, but they came with one accord to him, and having made Blastus the king's chamberlain their friend, desired peace, because their country was nourished by the king's country. And upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. That's his father. Similar show of great pomp and ceremony, isn't there? The point is he hasn't learned from his father's mistakes, has he? He's still showing this great amount of pomp and ceremony and, you know, look at me. You know, once all these dignitaries are present, Festus then commands for Paul to be brought forth. You know, what a contrast it is. Paul is brought forth before them in chains to stand before these, these leaders who came in with great pomp and ceremony. We have the lowly entrance of the Apostle Paul in chains. In chapter 26 and verse 29, it says that. It says, chapter 26, verse 29, And Paul said, I would to God, that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day, were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. And so Paul is standing before them in chains. Let out before them is the servant of God, and he stands humbly chained before this group of earthly dignitaries who've just entered with a great show of worldly pomp and ceremony. But you know, the most interesting thing is that the most important person in that room that day was Paul. It was Paul. You know, as you look at history, history only remembers those earthly dignitaries. Why? Because they crossed paths with Paul. I mean, we wouldn't know anything about King Agrippa II except I told you this morning who he is, only because he crossed paths with Paul. Bernice is the same. The only reason we looked at her is because he, she crossed paths with Paul. Festus, the same. Felix, before him. The only reason we've looked at any of their history is why? Because they had something to do with God's servant, the Apostle Paul. They thought they were the important ones. No, God's humble servant was the important one that day. The most important man in the room was Paul. And his words that he is about to speak are of great importance to the souls of all those present. In verse 24 to 27, Festus now speaks and indicates that he wants the king to examine Paul. Uh, we just read that, verse 24, it says, And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all men which are here present with us, ye see this man, about whom all the multitude of the Jews have dealt with me, both at Jerusalem and also here, crying that he ought not to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death, and that he himself hath appealed to, to Augustus, I have determined to send him, of whom I have no certain thing to write unto my Lord. Wherefore, I have brought him forth before you, and specially before thee, O King Agrippa, that after examination had I might have somewhat to write, for it seemeth to me unreasonable to send a prisoner, and not with all signal, signify the crimes laid against him. He tells them the reason now for the gathering, if you like. He introduces the scene. He says, I brought you all here this day to hear from Paul so I might have something to accuse him of. 
And notice that Festus makes it abundantly clear that he finds Paul innocent of all charges, finds him not worthy of anything of death. Verse 25, but when I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death. And so he admits, him, admits here before this group of gathered dignitaries, he says, I find him innocent. I can't find anything that he's guilty of. And so he's hoping that King Agrippa in particular will find something. You know, by examining him, by hearing him, maybe Paul will say something that he can write in his letter to Rome. As chapter 26 begins, verse 1 we read, Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Then Paul stretched forth the hand and answered for himself. As chapter 26 begins, Agrippa proceeds to give Paul free license to speak. He says, you're permitted to speak for yourself. Paul doesn't waste that opportunity, does he? He's like, yeah, all right, thank you very much. And Paul begins to speak and he delivers this, this powerful message of the truth, of what Christ can do for someone, the change that Christ can produce in someone's life. And by the time that Paul is finished, everyone in that auditorium knew they were a sinner and the only way of salvation was through the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul boldly proclaims the truth. He doesn't waste the opportunity. And tonight we'll look at that testimony from the Apostle Paul. You know, once again this morning we can see the hand of God in all this, can't we? See the hand of God, the providential hand of God. As God once again gives his servant yet another chance to preach the gospel. And what a chance it is. Gathered in this room is all these dignitaries from different regions, different cities. They're all in one room. And Paul has an opportunity to give them the gospel message without interruption. Free license to speak. Paul doesn't waste that chance that God gives him. You know, as I was thinking about it, you know, the Lord gives us chances too, doesn't he? He gives us chances and we should be praying every day for opportunities. But you know, when the Lord puts those opportunities before us, we need to take those opportunities. We need to boldly, like Paul, take that opportunity and proclaim the wonderful gospel message. That really should be our prayer this morning, that like Paul, we would have the boldness to take those opportunities God gives us. Not shy away from it, but step up and boldly proclaim the wonderful gospel message. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. Lord, as we've set the scene this morning for Lord Paul's testimony this evening, we thank you, Lord, for Paul's faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to him. You kept your promise to him and you gave him these opportunities to witness before Gentiles and kings. And Lord, we thank you for Paul and his boldness in declaring the truth. Lord, I pray that you give us opportunities to present the gospel. And Lord, may you help us to take those opportunities, not pass, let, not let them pass us by, but Lord, help us to, with boldness proclaim the truth unto those around us. Blessed as we close now, we pray in Jesus' name.